Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Special thank you to my Patreons who are supporting the show on a monthly basis in exchange for some extra content and behind-the-scenes updates. If you find value in this show, please consider joining this lovely group of people. Just check out the link in the description or go to patreon.com forward slash podcast. And another quick shout out before we get to the show, and that goes to Darren and Amanda from Outer Passage. They are past podcast guests, and I met them in person when I went sailing with them in Maine. We had a lot of fun, and it was a really great taste of the liverboard life. If you are interested in sailing with Outer Passage, check out their website that I've linked in the description. They have some trips coming up in the Caribbean next, and Darren and Amanda have kindly extended a discount to all you listeners So just mention this podcast and you will get 10% off your trip. Okay, now on with the show. Here's what's coming up next on the Liverboard Sailing Podcast. The other thing is seeing people who are like you and the things that you're interested is so important. It took me so many years. I didn't come out until I was 25. And a big part of that was because all of the news around trans people was so negative, and I didn't see trans people who were like me living the life that I wanted to live. Welcome to the podcast. I am your host, Annika. On the Liverboard Sailing Podcast, I chat with awesome people who live, work, and travel on their sailboats. My guests share inspiring stories and real-life advice about the lifestyle so that you and I can be better prepared for our sailing adventures. This week, we are talking about big, ambitious goals. My guest is Michaela Bauer, who is preparing for a circumnavigation, and she talks us through how she got to have this goal of circumnavigating, and not just that, but doing it solo. In addition to this, there is a little something extra. Michaela plans to be the first transgender person to circumnavigate. We talk about what this means and how she is preparing for this upcoming adventure. We had a quite a long chat and not everything made it to this interview, which means there is some extra content on Patreon. Now here is my chat with Michaela. And Michaela, tell me about your circumnavigation plan. It's an ambitious plan. I'm so looking forward to hearing more about it. So Well, I guess, first of all, when are you leaving and why? Why circumnavigate? I uh, am planning on departing. It's hard to announce when you're like, people want to know what day you're going to leave on a circumnavigation. And so uh, I have a commitment on July 29th of 
next year, and that's my last commitment. And from that point, I'm circumnavigating. If that means that I'm still just sitting in the bay that I'm currently living in waiting for the right weather window, well, I'm sitting in the bay living in the anchorage that I'm living in right now while circumnavigating. <laughs> so around the Pacific Northwest of, uh, of the U.S. where I am right now, the weather window tends to open up right around end of July, early August. Um, and I have the joy of having to then immediately race my way down to Panama to try and catch the first, that next weather window across the Pacific. If I miss that, it'll set my entire circumnavigation back about eight months. And the the plan is to only be gone from the Pacific Northwest a little over two years. So there's not a lot of time to sit around and wait for eight months or, you know, a lot of money or, or whatever to sit around and wait in the Bay of Panama for eight months. That'd be a long time to have to sit that, there. That'd so, be a long time. But, you know, I wouldn't mind oh, an eight-month detour to Panama. Sure. But, of course, that is an ambitious goal to do it in two years. That's exciting. And I guess, like with any circumnavigation, it's all about weather. It's true. It is all about weather. But I think that if I depart... That first week of August, I don't think it's going to be too hard for me to get down to Panama to catch kind of the end of the weather window departing in late October or early November to cross the Pacific. So that's the first leg. Um, and from there, I am crossing the Pacific. I'm going to end up in French Polynesia, jump pretty quickly from French Polynesia up to Singapore in order to avoid the typhoon season in the South Pacific. And then from Singapore, jump across to South Africa, possibly with a stop in the Maldives along the way, just to break it up a little bit. I'm crossing the Indian Ocean can be tough. There's either a ton of wind or no wind at all. And so finding the right weather window, do the entire thing. A lot of people stop in the Maldives or the Seychelles just in order to, to wait for that next weather window to do the next crossing. So we'll see if that's necessary. And then from South Africa, it's up to Brazil, and from Brazil, it's back to Panama, and it's it's that easy. That's how that's how simple it is to circumnavigate the globe. Yeah, you just draw some lines on a map. Sure, no big deal at all. <laughs> no, that's that's not true at all. It's a huge uh, thing to plan for and prepare for. But like, are you planning on then stopping along the way as well? It's obviously two years. So you're not doing a a full on nonstop. Yeah, I don't have uh, enough. Really, it comes down to I don't have enough water capacity on my boat in order to do a nonstop circumnavigation. She's a quick boat, but she's a quick boat from 45 years ago. And so I, I think it would be very difficult to do a nonstop circumnavigation in the boat that I currently have. Um, I also want to stop along the way and be able to, you know, see some of the sites. You know, the, the primary goal is the circumnavigation. I think that you're either a circumnavigator, or you're a cruiser, it's really hard to do both. You have to choose one or the other. And if if I think if your goal is to stop and see the sights along the way, you have to recognize that you're a cruiser and you're not necessarily going to circumnavigate. Or at least you can't really have a time frame in which you're trying to circumnavigate. And so I think that I fall more into the category of a circumnavigator. I'm, I'm taking off to do it in a certain amount of time and I'm Viewing it a little bit like a through hike, I've hiked the Pacific Crest Trail, and the goal is hiking, the goal isn't stopping and seeing the trail towns, and, and as cute and fun as they can be, you just keep pushing forward. So yeah, that that's kind of the way that I'm approaching this circumnavigation. Yeah, and that's really interesting, because, you know, everybody has their different uh, routes and durations. You know, some people spend 10 years doing a circumnavigation. Others, like all the people who are racing right now, doing the Golden Globe, yeah, no stopping, no modern electronics kind of thing. So I find it very interesting to follow these races. But yeah, there's kind of, you lose a bit of it if you don't stop along the way and see at least something, right? Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, as beautiful as the open ocean is, I think that there's also a lot of beauty in the in the places to stop along the way. I'm really excited for the places that I'm going to stop. That's a little bit of the the when and and when it's going to happen. The the why is the why is a hard. <laughs> I thought I had some elegant answer there, but um, the why is because 
no trans person has circumnavigated before. And I think it's worth someone going out and doing that. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought that person should be me. And so I have the the drive to do so, and I have the skill set to do so, and I have the boat to do so. And so there's no reason why I shouldn't be the one to go and do it. And I think that it's important because the more that trans people and, and queer people as a general whole put ourselves into every situation, event, workplace, whatever the case may be, the the more that we just become a part of everyone's everyday life. And I think that that's really important. I think that a lot of the dynamic that I see, especially here in the US between some people who are anti-trans, who are bringing forth anti-trans legislation to make it harder for children to transition to make it harder for adults to live a life after transitioning. It's it's not only stripping away our bodily autonomy and our identity, it's making it more polarized between those of us who are just trying to live the lives as the people we are and, and those who have some issue with us. And so the more that we can integrate those lives together, the more understanding there can be. I've met some people who I know fall on the pretty hard right side of the aisle and upon meeting me and actually spending some time together, they really come to to just see me as another person. Um, and I've managed to have some really good conversations, some really productive relationships with those people. And so I think that the broader scales that you can do that on, you know, I think it's a chance to integrate ourselves. There there are a lot of trans sailors out there. I'm friends with tons of them, and I'm sure there are tons that I'm not even aware of. We exist in the community, but I still think that there's a lot of polarization within the sailing community, and I think this is a, a really good opportunity to be able to say, you know, we, we've done the same thing. One, one of us has done the same thing that all the rest of you have done, and so it's just another, it's just another big footstep of common ground. Yeah, yeah. Oh, for sure. And would imagine from what I know of the sailing community, obviously, it's kind of historically been very white man kind of activity, uh, especially in the racing world. Um, so it is interesting to see the that there is more diversity. And, and based on what you just said, that there are trans sailors out there, uh, you just don't necessarily hear much about them or see them around unless you're out there uh, doing it yourself. Uh, so, but I'm glad to hear that you have, you know, made some of those connections and that you are doing this project of yours to bring more attention to it. I think it's a really cool and kind of much needed, I don't know, kind of a, not a new story, but a thing to do because I, you know, it's been a tumultuous year or a few years uh, from what I gather in the US for transgender people and all sorts of laws and proposals going up. So I think it's good to have some positive news and uplifting news and projects and updates from someone like you who's doing a really cool project. When I wrote my press release to announce the circumnavigation, I included a statistic in that that 221 anti-trans bills had been brought forth in the United States just this year. And I wrote that that press release in the very end of June. Since that point, we're now over 300 and so it's so much news and so much um, fodder almost, like just being brought forth to to just try and do something to, to quiet this community that I think the only reaction to it is to be louder and to stay in the news more and to bring just as much attention in some ways to ourselves that the in a positive way that the right is trying to bring in a really negative way. Yeah, absolutely. I think those positive um, news stories eventually when you get, you know, on way on your way and then start sharing from your journey, they'll be much needed because it is kind of true. Like, you know, if I see something about transgender people in the news, it's usually not a positive update <laughs> or a good update. Sometimes, sometimes it is, you know, here in Canada, there's uh, maybe a slightly different attitude than, than uh, in America, but not that Canada is perfect either, but uh, yeah, I'm just looking forward to seeing more more updates uh, from the sailing community as well. Um, that would include more diversity. It's very true, um, and I I think that that's one of the 
the the last two things I'll say on the the why point. I I am a fellow white sailor. I have some diversity in being a trans and queer person, but it also puts me in a position where I have a lot of privilege to go and do a trip like this, where I think that there are other trans sailors, especially trans sailors of color, who may not have the same privilege afforded to them right now. And I want everything done to take steps towards everyone having the same opportunity. And I think that the visibility of of someone who's trans and queer doing this trip will open up that visibility for others. The other thing is seeing people who are like you and the things that you're interested is so important. It took me so many years. I didn't come out until I was 25. And a big part of that was because all of the news around trans people was so negative, And I didn't see trans people who were like me living the life that I wanted to live. And so I didn't think that the the lifestyle that I was dreaming of was compatible with being an out trans person. And I think that that visibility is so necessary. And I think it's part of why you do see a lot more kids transitioning earlier these days is because it's not as scary because there are people who you can look up to who who look like you or do the activities that you're interested in or in some way live the life that you want to live as a trans person, as someone who's out and comfortable with who they are. Yeah, absolutely. And now there's, you know, even the language exists for that. Like I'm thinking back to like when I was a kid, like I wouldn't have even known anything about that. But now I feel like uh, at least in North America, kids have the language to talk about these things. Like it's not uh, something that's just not talked about. I hope. I, I think that's my thinking anyway, from my perspective, that it's a little more out there now. I really agree. I think that the language is there, and I think it's so important. I didn't have the language as I, when I was a kid. I had the idea in my head that I was supposed to be a girl from a very young age, but I didn't have the language to say that, um, other than just saying it like that, which was a confusing way for myself to try to find resources and a confusing endeavor for my parents to try and find resources when I was young, because it just didn't mesh with anything that was really understood. And the terminology, I mean, yeah, <laughs> it, it was bad there for a while. Um, but words are powerful and calling people what they want to be called and, and having the ability to have those conversations and have that. It all just comes from terminology. No, that's very true. But uh, let's get back to the sailing thing, because you're going by yourself, aren't you? I am. Yeah. Why by yourself? I don't like other people. <laughs> <laughs> I love this honesty. <laughs> I, I did read that question last night, and I thought, how honest am I going to be about this? I guess pretty honest. <laughs> um, that's mostly a joke. I do like other people. I don't know that... I think that I would really struggle having someone else aboard for two years for a trip like this. There's also, at a, at a broader, no one who has been openly trans has as ever circumnavigated, but there have been openly queer people who have circumnavigated, but there's never been anyone who's been openly queer who's circumnavigated solo. And so I think that that, just kind of being there as, as a thing that can be claimed is is worth going after. I also, not that I really looked, I've been planning on doing this solo from the beginning, but I don't know anyone in my life who would be interested in doing this trip and have the ability to do this trip and is someone who I would like to do this trip with. I know that I don't want to spend two years on a boat with just on a little 30 foot boat with someone else who's just in it for, you know, being a professional crew or whatever. And so... I think it makes sense. Also, when you have a second person on board, you have to double all the resources that you have on board. And Swirl's a small boat. And I think that when I'm looking at things, especially like water, I have about 60 gallons on board, which gives me a very comfortable 40 days offshore. If we're talking about two people, it would need to be at least 100 gallons. And I don't know where that other 40 gallons would go. And I do think it will take 30 to 40 days to cross the Pacific in my boat. So we would have to have that somewhere. And I, yeah, 
I, I don't think that swirl is not to say that you, obviously people have circumnavigated two people on a 30 foot boat, but I, I don't think swirl is set up to be that, that boat. All right. So a little bit of just pure logistics, but also kind of, you don't mind being by yourself. And, and I was kind of curious about that because some people, the thought of being by yourself, uh, like literally just by yourself with no internet, no other people for 30 or 40 days on a Pacific crossing, that would be like a complete no-no. So I'm curious, are you at all apprehensive about that? Are you looking forward to that? Some people love the disconnect. So what are your thoughts about the, those longer passages where it's just you and the ocean? I am super excited. I, um, the longest I've ever spent alone right now was about 14 days backpacking through the mountains. I did see one other person in that 14 days, but it was a very quick, just, you know, they were going one way, I was going the other way, waved at each other on the trail and, um, and kept going. And I had, I had stashed food halfway through. That's how I was able to do a, a 14 day journey backpacking. And, that was not enough alone time. I could have definitely <laughs> taken more alone time. I'm really excited. I want to see if if 40 days alone at sea, if I get to the other side and I'm like, okay, I'm ready to, to be around people now. Not to say that I don't regularly feel ready to be around people. I do. I, I love other people, but I also really do love my alone time. And I'm, I'm super excited. The pace that I'm going at too, I'm only going to be sailing, especially crossing oceans sailing about 50% of the time. And so it will give me time in these places that I'm going to be visiting the ports of call I'm going to have to resupply to meet other cruisers and meet locals and to spend some time around people. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think I would be quite uh, interested in that kind of disconnect and uh, hiking and through hiking particularly appeals to me as well, although I'm yet to do any proper through hiking, but just to disconnect from the world. You don't need to know what's going on in the world or read the news. It's just you and your simple task of moving forward for the next day and the next day and the next day. <laughs> There's something really nice about that. The hardest part of through hiking for me was the other hikers. There you go. It's like a darn other people again. <laughs> so, well, you mentioned uh, a little bit about your boat, uh, Swirl. It's 30 feet. Uh, what else? What kind of boat is it? So, Swirl is a Clark-built 1977 San Juan 30. Clark Boat Company actually only built four San Juan 30s, uh, and I am lucky enough to have one of the hulls that they actually laid up here in Renton, Washington. They're built a little bit stronger than the ones that were laid up in California. The rest of the, the Clark San Juan 30s were laid up in California for the actual hull and deck, and then they were shipped up to Washington, and Clark Boat Company did the finishing work. They did all the rigging, they did all the painting, the interior, all of that. But they were built by a company in California. So I have one of the four that they actually built here, which is kind of cool. <laughs> um, it's hall number 67. Uh, they only built about 280 of them. And my particular boat has already done a pretty big voyage. She's actually already been through the Panama Canal once. In 1986, she went through the Panama Canal. In 1988, I know that I have receipts from a boatyard in Maine. And then in 1990, she was winning races back here in Seattle. So I think she was shipped back across the country. But she definitely sailed all the way down the Pacific Coast, through the Panama Canal, and all the way up the East Coast to Maine. So... She already has a fair fair number of miles under her keel. She is a very custom boat. I started in 2020 by completely gutting the interior, and instead of restoring the boat the way it was built originally, I built my own interior. Um, the only things that were left in place are the four main structural bulkheads and the V-berth platform, because it had recently been replaced. I added a structural bulkhead to the stern, Previously, especially when you were going downwind and following seas, you could really feel the stern twisting as you went through the, the waves, which it was designed to some extent to do so. But adding that bulkhead has stiffened everything up and she tracks a lot straighter through the waves now. I think that the big reason that that wasn't done originally was just weight saving. She was, she was built as a race boat through and through, and so everything was down to speed. 
I don't have a uh, an inboard. Um, I'm on the fence right now about whether I will be adding an electric inboard to the boat or not. She has a custom rigging plan. I've modified her into a cutter rig, kind of more of a slutter rig. Um, I didn't move the mast any aft, and so, but she has a, a inner forestay that is closer to a cutter dimension than than an inner stay on a sloop would be. Um, it's a little bit bigger than, and then the the sail plan itself is set up to sail as a cutter, not just as a as a inner forestay on a sloop. So both sails are designed to to fly at the same same time, um, in light winds. Yeah, I don't know. I, I've just recently finished replacing all of her rigging. She has a new paint job. I fixed some soft spots in the deck this summer. She has an all new interior. Everything is new. When I bought her, she didn't have anything. She didn't have any water tanks. She didn't have an inboard. She didn't have a head. She didn't have any black water or gray water tanks. And so all of that I have added. Um, I also have completely gutted and rewired the entire boat electrically. So she's a 1977 boat that was rebuilt in 2020 through 2022 and um, should be ready to to take on another 50 years of adventure, hopefully. That is wild. And that is a lot of work. <laughs> oh my- Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Gosh, um, I have seen photos of the somewhat recent paint job, and it is such a cool color. It's very unique, kind of minty green, maybe? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's really unique. I like it. Yeah, I uh, had a log strike in the end of June. It was either very end of June or very beginning of July. And I actually bent the rudder. So that's so she also has a brand new rudder with a very modern design. In fact, I've been warned that if I was racing this boat, I would have to take a handicap because the rudder design is so much better than the original rudder design. Um something like a tenth of a second a mile or whatever. But I'm not racing, so I don't care. <laughs> I just care that she steers better than she did before and that I have a rudder that's not bent. Um, so yeah, I hit about a 30-foot long log. It was about four feet in diameter. It was completely waterlogged. It was floating about a foot below the surface, and I hit it square on at five and a half knots. I cracked the the bow, Um of the boat right where the two layers of of lamination meet in the middle. There was a crack that was pretty easy to replace. I wasn't taking on any water through that, but I also cracked where the rudder tube came up and I was taking on some water from that. So we had to do an emergency haul out. And while I was out of the water, I figured I'd make the very most of it and um, figured I would repaint the boat. And I was hauled out here in Friday Harbor and one of my wonderful sponsors, Central Sailing Solutions, said, we have a can of paint you can have if you want it, but it's seafoam green. And I <laughs> went and I looked at it and I thought about it and I looked at the boat and I went, yeah, I think that'd be a really good color. And I started painting the boat and I got halfway through the first <laughs> the first coat on, the, on just one side of the hull and I went, oh, I've made a terrible mistake. <laughs> but I kept going and... Um, and did three coats and, and uh, then did the kind of highlight stripes on the boat 
that same color and it really tied it all together. And I think it looks phenomenal now. I wouldn't trade that color for anything. I love it. <laughs> but I know. Yeah, it's, it's really cool. I, I like it too. Um, yeah, it's really unique. It's not one of those like, Oh, it's the white boat, you know, yeah. at the dock. <laughs> but it's still light enough that my, my goal with it is it's still light enough that you can see it easily through foggy conditions. And it's still light enough that uh, when I'm down in the tropics, it's not going to just absorb heat. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, I didn't think of those implications of the hull color. But yeah, no, that, that totally makes sense. But you mentioned something that you don't have an inboard and you may not have. So it's an engine engineless boat? Yeah, we'll see. I'm not sure that I'm quite ready to to announce or claim that just because I haven't made that decision. Um, I have looked extensively for sponsors who are willing to help with a uh, the 48 volt battery system is actually the expensive part. Um, the motor is not quite as expensive, and I have a, a prop and propeller or prop shaft and propeller if um, if I do go that route. But there's a chance that I'm going to end up just going engineless. I need to look more into what exactly is required to to claim an engineless circumnavigation. That feels like it's a whole nother huge step. And the reality is, is I probably wouldn't because um, I would still have my tender with an outboard. And I have already have experience moving swirl around by just hip tying my tender and, and being able to use that outboard to push her around. Oh, well, that is interesting for sure. Whichever way you go go about it, that will be an interesting thing to follow. You know, is there so many options you could go electric? Like you said, you looked at those. So that'll be cool to see. I will not be putting a diesel back in. That, oh, okay. That's the only guarantee is there will not be a diesel engine going back in. Fantastic. All right. Well, now this just got even more interesting. <laughs> but well, okay, so you've owned your your boat for a while, you've done a lot of work on it. How long have you actually been sailing? Well, I bought the boat January 1st, 2020. And that is how long I've been sailing. Oh, no way. Really? <laughs> yep. <laughs> Fantastic. All right. So you're one of these uh, people who I greatly admire. Who's just like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to buy a boat and then I'm going to learn to sail. Yep. Um, probably could have done it smarter. Probably could have taken sailing lessons. Probably could have had someone else on the boat who knew what the hell they were doing at some point. But um, <laughs> that's not really my speed, I guess. Uh, well, it appears to be a very good way to learn from other people who I've talked to who've done a similar thing. So... Yeah, I mean, I've I've made a lot of mistakes. Um, I've actually put a spreader in the water before, which was terrifying. But but I've done it, and I and I know that the boat stands back up now, and um, I know how to avoid that in the future. A hundred and thirty percent foresail and a mainsail and twenty eight knots of wind is too much sail. Um, well, you live and you learn, I guess. Exactly. <laughs> Oh, so, all right, so let's just say that you're relatively new to the sailing and you're planning a circumnavigation. So what are or were some of the things that were important for you to learn in light of your goal of circumnavigating? I think that the scary part to me is heavy weather sailing techniques, but I think that the part that I have spent the most time and working on the skill is light wind sailing techniques because because at the end of the day both both will kill you <laughs> and so i think it's really important to be good at both i spent a lot of time especially as a as a sailboat without an inboard if you want to learn how to sail buy a sailboat without an inboard because all you can really do is sail um and so i've put three thousand miles on the boat since i bought it sailing in a multitude of conditions I'm lucky to, you know, if I if I leave the anchorage that I'm in right now, I can be out in the middle of the Strait of Juan de Fuca in about two and a half hours, and that's some of the roughest sailing you see anywhere, <laughs> um, because it's just a big wind chute between the Olympic Peninsula and Vancouver Island, and the Pacific Swell comes all the way in, and so you get really gnarly conditions out there, and it's been a really great training ground and, and proving ground. I think that the 
The pieces that I'm still a little bit nervous about, I think, are mostly in regards to, to heavy weather sailing. Um, Swirl doesn't heave to super well because she has a pretty small fin keel. That's a skill set that I plan on getting better at still through this winter. Um, and then I'm taking a series drogue for really heavy weather. And there's no real way to practice with that one, which is probably for the best. <laughs> You just kind of go out there and you, you, you make it, you, you, I mean, you throw it overboard. Like there's not that much to it, but I think in general, I feel really confident about the experience that I have right now and the experience going forward. Um, there are a lot of good sailing days ahead this winter to go out and practice and, and just continue to improve these skill sets. You know, I've sailed in just about every condition though. I've been out in 35, 40 knots in the snow. <laughs> Won't experience that on the equator. But the other thing about inland sailing, and, and especially with the, the Strait and the Pacific Swell rolling in, is you, you get big waves with really short intervals. And that's something that hopefully I will see a little bit less of in the open ocean. Big wave, you know, have big waves with longer intervals are a little easier to deal with. Yeah, I mean, I, I and at this point, I, I have... Uh, gone out with some people who really know what they're doing, who have crossed oceans, who have, um, and gotten a lot of good advice and good training. And, and I'm feeling pretty confident as far as that goes. That's really good. And yeah, you're so right about the Pacific Northwest being a good training ground, like just compared to like, say, Caribbean, where the winds tend to be more consistent and similar all the time, you get the same condition. So you get really good at that one condition, uh, or sailing conditions that are there. Um, so that's quite interesting. And also, when you start your trip from the Pacific Northwest, you go south. Um, I've talked to a few people who've done the crossing from Canada to Mexico. And uh, none of them have said that it's been nice. Uh, and in fact, somebody um, shared an advice, a piece of advice that they were given is like, if that passage from like Vancouver Island to Mexico is horrible and terrible and, you know, will make you think you don't want to sail again ever, you know, don't let that be an indicator of what it is, because that might very well be the worst that you'll have in your circumnavigation. <laughs> yep. Yep. I have, I have heard very similar that, that first, especially three weeks off the coast of Washington and, you know, coast of Washington, coast of Oregon and Northern California is pretty rough. Um, I do plan on going about 200 miles offshore and just doing it all in one big push. And my understanding is it's supposed to be a little bit easier to do that, but it's still pretty brutal. And it's just, it's two weeks at least of just beating up wind. Yeah, yeah, it will be a good uh, sort of a shakedown sale, I guess. But like, th th there's a lot to prepare, obviously, like skills wise and equipment wise and all that. But how else are you preparing for that? Like, are you feeling pretty, not blasé, but like you said, confident about it? Or is there some element of mental preparation? I think to some extent, I'm approaching it a little bit the way that I did the Pacific Crest Trail, where I don't think that there is tons of mental preparedness that you can do. You just kind of go out and start doing it. One of the best pieces of advice I got before hiking the Pacific Crest Trail was you don't have to be in the best shape of your life. You don't have to be an experienced through hiker to go out and hike the Pacific Crest Trail because it's going to get you in the best shape of your life and you're going to turn into an experienced through hiker by hiking the Pacific Crest Trail. And that was a really good piece of advice just to kind of give me that final kick in the pants to get me out the door. Um... I feel similarly, like, I think that there are a lot more skill sets that you need to be a, a circumnavigational sailor, but I don't think that, um, like, the fact that I don't have tons of passage-making experience under my belt, um, I, I've done a little bit, um, both here in the Pacific Northwest, and then I, I did grow up hanging on my uncle's sailboat in Mexico um, for at least a week every summer. So there was some sailing experience there as well. Um, I think that the rest of the skill sets will will kind of come. Now, I, I do have a lot of my background is in mountaineering and rock climbing and, and risk management, and especially risk management 
with high consequences, but like a lot of physics being involved as well is something that I, I really just kind of innately understand from my years as a climber. Um, I also have a lot of first aid experience and, uh, and courses that I've taken. And so I feel pretty good on that front. I'm a good backcountry chef, which I think translates really well to being a good sailboat chef. Like a lot of those things that just kind of to keep me alive through the, through the trip. Um, a lot of those are skill sets that I really do already, already have. As far as just like things that I feel like I still need to learn. I mean, I'd just always continue to improve on those skill sets I already have, but. Yeah. And of course, it's not that you need to know everything on day one of your journey. You'll keep learning as you go. So by day, whatever it is, 600 something at, uh, you know, t at two years, uh, you know, you'll know a whole lot more than you left, whether you were hyper extra prepared or under prepared. Uh, you mentioned your background in, you know, through hiking, mountaineering, climbing. Well, that's really interesting how it's all kind of led you towards this um, big uh, goal that you have uh, starting next year. But before that happens, there's still one more winter left in the Pacific Northwest living on a sailboat, which sounds oh so romantic, but, uh, you know, let's be real, winter sucks. <laughs> so how's, uh, you know, you always spend uh, some time uh, on your boat in the wintertime in the Pacific Northwest. So I always like to get people to share what are your winter survival tips? Yeah, um, I not only live on a winter on a sailboat through the winter, I live on a sailboat at anchor through the winter. Yeah, last winter, I ended up on anchor. Um, and in part, it was because the marina also, I was a little late gain on the wait list. And it was the winter before I was rebuilding the boat. And so the boat was actually out of the water the whole winter before. And I was living in a little cabin while I, you know, the boat was unlivable. So last winter was the first winter. And it was a particularly brutal winter. Um, we had some really, really strong winds out of the south. Um, we had some freezing sea spray come out of the north. Um, we also had the wind direction out of the north. There's like, there's like five degrees of wind direction, where if it comes right through that, then there's a huge amount of fetch in the anchorage that I'm in. And, you know, we had three foot waves coming through the anchorage. Um, so that was uncomfortable. Again, that was one of those that was more perceived risk. It wasn't actually blowing all that hard, but it was it was a little scary, a little uncomfortable. <laughs> so I I guess I'll talk specifically to living on a boat at anchor through the winter. One wood heating. I I can't praise enough for for wood heating. Everything else, even if you have it properly vented, introduces moisture to your atmosphere, which is your biggest enemy in the winter. Diesel heat's pretty good. Propane heat is really bad, especially if you don't have it properly vented. For every gallon of propane you burn, no, for every pound of propane you burn, you make a gallon of water. Yeah, that's... <laughs> I think that's the scene in The Martian that not enough people understood was that he was burning an open flame of propane to make water in his little uh, uh, potato tent. Um, but, but that's what was going on. And that's what happens in your boat if you use propane heat is <laughs> you're making a greenhouse, which is conducive for everything that you don't want to grow to grow in. So wood heat, I, I can't recommend it enough. I think that it's a little bit scary to have a, a wood burning fireplace on a boat, but I, I got over it pretty quick as soon as, um, as soon as I started using it. And I, I mean, if you properly insulate and have enough space around and whatnot, I think it's perfectly safe. So that, for one, wood heat's wonderful. It also heats the boat pretty quickly, which is, which is really nice when you arrive back home from work and it's below freezing and you've just gone through the waves to get home, <laughs> which I guess will lead to the second point. Um, and I think that this is a, a really good point for circumnavigating as well. I think that one of the most valuable tools you can possibly have on a sailboat is a beater dinghy with a really good outboard. <laughs> something that, and an inflatable dinghy, something that's really stable, that was cheap, and when it dies, you buy another one, and you can just beat the heck out of it. 
Also, I, I mean, not only just going through the waves to get from the port, it's about a half mile from the port to my boat. So it's a it's a good 10 minute journey every day. I also have a long shaft outboard on my dinghy. And the point of that is it gives when I do need to use it as a tugboat to move my boat around, or from time to time to move other boats around that have drug anchor, it gives a lot more, you have a lot more force with a with it further down with the prop further down in the water than you do with one that would be a proper shaft length for for my tender. The, the other thing that I use the tender for a lot is through the whole winter, I use a two anchor setup. And how that works is I have one primary anchor that is on all chain, and I use 5 sixteenths chain on my boat with a 15 kilogram rock net at the end. So it's a really, I mean, for, I have a boat with 7,000 pounds of displacement and very little windage. So for my boat, that's a really robust um, anchor setup. I don't hardly ever have to worry about that one dragging. That said, I use a secondary anchor that is on mostly, um, and I, and I do use a snubber on the chain, but then I use a secondary anchor that's mostly on nylon road to act as a shock absorber. My boat also, being a small fin keel, really likes to surf on anchor, meaning that when the wind comes and it pulls against that anchor chain, it likes to blow off to one side and then the wind will catch it and blow the boat over and it blows back to the other side and having a secondary anchor helps center it between those two anchors and it really helps keep the boat from surfing as much without having to add windage of something like a riding sail which i will do some i'll do a riding sail to help keep it centered sometimes if there's like a 10 knot blow during the summer but i don't want to add the windage during the winter um the second part of that though and, and part of why a beater dinghy is so important is because I'm constantly pulling and placing that secondary anchor from the dinghy. Um, and so having something that you don't mind running chain over and, um, and, you know, having a muddy gross anchor come up in. And I, I think, you know, and, and then I think that the other, uh, the other part of it is just in, embrace some of the discomfort. And I, I kind of use it, one of my ways of embracing the discomfort, and this, I think, started when suffering in the mountains in the winter, when doing, I don't know why, one of my, one of my actually failed winter ascents just kind of came to mind of, of attempting to do Dome Peak in the winter, which, like, I couldn't find that anyone had ever done it, and I was going to go up and do it solo, and I ended up with hypothermia, and it was just, it was, it was a rough trip. Um... But one of the things that I've, I've learned about suffering in the mountains is I find it easier if I have food that I really like. And so that's one thing that I really kind of embrace in the winter. It's just like those cozy foods that just like, you know, mac and cheese and um, those things help keep me happier through the winter. But yeah, you have to find something. Um, I'm excited for this winter because I can't work on boat projects. <laughs> And I've spent all summer working on boat projects and the boat's pretty much ready to go. Like there's very little, I mean, and when I say very little, there's like, I need to install a new stern light. I, I have it. I just need to physically like put the two holes in the boat and crimp the wires. Like it's real small projects like that. And there's maybe a handful of them left um, that I still need to do. But otherwise the boat's pretty much ready to go. One of the things I enjoyed about last winter was I got to spend more time with friends and people in my life who are important to me because I wasn't constantly working on the boat. And the part that was a bummer about last winter was I had all these projects that I was making lists and prepare, you know, buying parts for and um, just preparing it just felt like the summer was just like looming over me of like, how on earth am I going to get this all done during the summer? And little did I know, I was going to be waiting for a new rudder to be fabricated and actually have plenty of time <laughs> to sit around and work on boat projects. But in some ways, that was a blessing in disguise of just, you know, it, it took some of the stress factor away. But now this winter, I'm excited. I, I don't have big outdoor boat projects that are going to be looming over my head for next year. And I get to just kind of enjoy the winter. Um, I think that that's one of my biggest tips to anyone wanting to live aboard a sailboat, whether it's at anchor or whether it's in a marina. And I and I would really highly suggest living aboard in a marina, especially for your first winter. Um, but 
I, I find a way to enjoy it. Yeah, embrace the winter. Doesn't matter if you're on land or on a boat. Just you know, lean into it. It's gonna happen one way or another. <laughs> if you're living in this, these latitudes that we do, so <laughs> that makes sense. Well, fantastic. Well, there's still a few months. Well, like what are we at? Eight, nine months or so before you know you start making real moves to get on your way. So where can we follow your journey? Uh, currently and when you get going and all that. Yeah, I am. Uh, my website is probably the best place to at least initially touch base. Uh, it is whoismichaelabauer.com. That has links to just about everywhere else that you can find me. I'm most active on Instagram and it's at svswirl, sailing vessel swirl, so short turn to SV Swirl. And then especially once I get going, though there is some content slowly trickling out right now. Um, I'm also on YouTube at youtube.com forward slash sailing swirl. Another great way to get involved, especially if you really want to be a participant in helping the first trans circumnavigation happen is we I have a Patreon and it's patreon.com forward slash SV Swirl. That's a really great way to get involved. I post a lot of updates there that aren't posted anywhere else. There's videos that you can find there that aren't available anywhere else. Very soon there will be uh, some merch there that's not going to be available other places. So some of those announcements. Real cute tote bag (laughs) coming soon. I hope you are left inspired after this interview. I know I am. Go check out Michaela's website and social channels. I've linked them below in the description. Next week is a whole new story about having way more people on board. As always, thank you for listening. Bye for now. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.